Yeah, I don't think it's overstating it to say that actually you, what you're sort of seeing is a form of, of gaslighting. That's what I would call it. If you're looking at creativity, we would see this as a sort of originality. People who are going to be most affected by all this technology are very rarely the people who are ever consulted. Hello and welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. My name's Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And Chris and I are on a mission to lift the lid, to unpack the role of creativity in life and business through the lens of ideas, stories and visual communication. At this week's guest is a very old, very good friend of mine, Jeremy Waxtoff, who, since we were at university together, has risen to extraordinary heights as one of the world's leading journalists reporting on the interface between technology and people. Um, I will read you a little biography about him. It says, born and raised in the United Kingdom, Wagstaff developed a keen interest in technology from an early age. He pursued his passion by studying computer science at university. Now, I read that out to you because I was at university with Jeremy and he did not study computer science. And the source for that little intro was chat G-E-T, and that's a little thing we'll explore. Yes, well, it is, and, and we won't think it's lying or fibbing, but he says it's actually hallucinating. And uh, so it was a, it's a very interesting concept. Look, I, I, it was so thought-provoking, the, the idea that he, that he describes about the fact that the way people are using it is not necessarily the way that the people that designed it intended it to, but they didn't understand how humans actually react with things that are human-like. And the fact that, you know, we have we think this is, is some sort of intelligence, but it's actually just predictive text, always guessing what the next word's going to be. So absolutely fascinating conversation, incredibly articulate, intelligent fellow, and, and a friend of yours to boot, Chris. Yes, a good friend. Uh, and it's very interesting how his career has transitioned from being an evangelist for technology, helping people understand and decode this complex stuff. And it's now much more sounding alarm bells about technology, where it's going wrong, how it might negatively affect our lives. I think that's really fascinating how his 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 um, core message has changed over time. Let's get him in. Yeah. Jeremy Wagstaff, we're old mates. It's great to see you again and welcome to The Common Creative. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Jeremy, great to have you on as a guest, even if you are an old mate of Chris's. <laughs> now, Jeremy, you and I first met at university, but for the people listening, please tell us a little bit about yourself. What what happened since university and this stellar career you've built in the field of journalism? Thank you. Yeah, so when I left university, I realized that I hadn't studied properly, so I went back to university again to do an MA. By that time, I was very interested in politics, something I hadn't been interested in before. Uh, and becoming a journalist. So moved out to Asia in 87, uh, worked for Reuters uh, and later the Wall Street Journal, uh, BBC across Southeast Asia, um, sort of covering wars, politics and, and gore, really. And then kind of decided that I'd had enough of that and that technology was in a way more interesting and possibly more positive uh, way of looking at the world. And so switched over to writing about technology. And now I find that the the circle has come round again, and we're back in the kind of the politics and the gore and the messiness uh, as the as technology kind of hits politics and rubs up against it. That that was that, absolutely my question: is having experienced writing about gore, are you still writing about gore through the lens of technology? Has it become that dirty and that 
that's scary, I guess, is the subject. Yeah, I think actually the, the place that I've ended up with in technology, I started out writing this column for the Wall Street Journal. It was a very trying to get people over their phobia of, of technology. So this was 2000, up, mainly the 2000s, that, that decade. And for me, the issue really was then trying to persuade everyone else who wasn't a geek that actually this stuff was useful. And then I kind of feel like I've spent the last 10, 12 years warning people about the kind of excesses of technology as the business models around technology have changed and the, the user has become the product, the data that they spew out has become the, uh, the kind of meat of the industry. And that has led to what I feel are kind of great abuses of, of privacy uh, and trust uh, via technology and uh, the devices that we carry becoming more of a, a beacon for gathering data about us than being a useful kind of productivity, social, personal tool. Now, one one of the triggers for getting you involved in the show, apart from just reconnecting again, was a particular article you wrote about, I think it was ChatGPT, and, and you asked it a rather obscure question, deliberately, I think, to sort of see, test the boundaries of, it, of what it was capable of. And then what was interesting is you probed and said, tell me your sources, tell me how you know this. And then... Maybe I should get you to tell the story, but the, the way I understand it is basically ChatGPT couldn't or wouldn't tell you where it had got the information from, and that's the first warning sign I'd seen about AI. Tell us a bit more about that. Was that is that a good summary, and uh, what are the implications of that? Yes, yeah, that, that's a very fair summary. So this is back in January. Uh, I was using a flavor of uh, ChatGPT, so it's essentially the same back end, but it was a slightly different front end. It was going through WhatsApp. And I wasn't trying to trick it. I was just interested to see what it knew about a subject that I was interested in, uh, the Nazi and Adolf Hitler's use of, of sound to create an emotion in an audience, even before he appears on, on stage. Uh, infrasound, actually, in that case. It is quite an obscure topic, but an interesting one. I hadn't found a lot of material about it in my research. Um, so I was kind of interested to see well, what would this, what might this throw up. And it came back with some really great... Uh, details about how Hitler used sound. And then I asked, naturally enough, what were its sources? And it gave me a bunch of papers, academic papers and books. And I was quite excited and somewhat humble at the same time because I hadn't come across any of these papers or books. And I thought I was pretty good at this kind of thing. So I searched them out uh, while we were still kind of chatting, as it were. And uh, I realized that these things didn't exist. The, the author may exist, but the book or the title of the paper didn't exist the the journal, academic journal that it cited existed but that that version that iteration of the of the journal that edition uh, didn't exist and the paper didn't exist so uh, there was truth wrapped up with with fabrication and so of course i went back to uh chat and said okay can you send me the links it started sending me links none of which worked and I realized that actually what I was dealing with was, was what they call hallucination. It's when uh, LLM models actually create content, they're generating content, but they're not generating real content, truthful content. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just entirely fabricated within the, the generative AI itself. And, and that's not a, is that an act of creativity then? Or, or is it just a weakness in the technology that we need to be aware of? Yes, I think that's a good question. I mean, basically, we're seeing a sort of fork in the road there, right? If you're looking at creativity, we would see this as a sort of originality. 
mm-hmm. not necessarily a, a astounding, amazing originality, but it's taking something that exists, two bits of information that exist, but don't connect together and putting them together and sort of seeing what the, what the fireworks are. The other fork of the road, of course, is the problem that I found when I tried to ask ChatGBT about whether it was making these things up and asking it why I couldn't find these references that it was was giving me. And that was when I felt it took a really dark turn because it, it was basically saying, yes, these things are real. I'm not making these things up. Maybe you don't have access to these journals or you're using the wrong search term. In other words, it was undermining or uh, essentially confronting my my professionalism, my ability to do my job rather than saying, uh, oh, I'm really sorry. Yes, actually, these things don't exist. And that, to me, is a much sort of darker road to go down. Um, just as an aside, um, according to ChatGPT, you studied computer science at university, and you and I are uni together, and I know that that's not true. Uh, and so I, I, I completely understand that. I, I see this piece of technology confidently giving us data mm. that might well be inaccurate. And I, I get, that seems to be the the point you're making that we can be misled into things uh, because yeah. it looks valid, it looks real, it looks powerful, and yet it's not. Yeah, I don't think it's overstating it to say that actually you, what you're sort of seeing is a form of, of gaslighting. That's what I would call it, where you're sort of challenging the kind of intelligence, the ability, the the, the knowledge uh, of the individual. And I, I have to say, since then, they've kind of fixed this. And I don't know whether it's what, what I did or whether others have done uh, critics of its hallucination, as they, they call it, have, have uh, made these points before. But I have noticed that you can't do the same thing now. It's been fixed, as it were. It will preface every kind of question you ask uh, along these lines of citing sources. I'm a generative AI and I can't provide sources, but this is a general kind of sense of what I've got. It's still hallucinating in the sense that it's sometimes creating things which aren't correct. When you when you ask it to create a table of data, a lot of those entries are, 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 can't be verified in any way, so has has to be assumed that that's that's creative stuff. But it's rode back from what I would say this sort of dark psychological side of dealing with AI, which is that you as an individual are feeling that you're talking to an individual. You yeah, feel it's a kind of human-like conversation, and within that human-like conversation, you suddenly feel like you're the kind of inferior party. You're the one who's sort of on, on the back foot. And that is an area which, to me, has been the kind of start of a much bigger explana- exploration of what artificial intelligence might might uh, might mean for humanity. Mm. Jeremy, you, you mentioned just earlier that you were basically, you know, the thing that interests you, you spent the first years trying to convince people to use technology and now you're sort of warning people of the dangers. Um, and I know you're not a futurist, but like... Like where where is this going to go? Like you know, I know they've just got chat, GPT Chat Four, you know, out, and, and they, as you say, they're fixing these things. And you're talking about a limit um, uh, hallucination, which is obviously different from imagination. But like you know, where where is it <laughs> going to go? Like, what, what are the dangers? What are we going to miss out on? Like, does it mean that people are going to not trust reading books anymore because it's you know they don't know whether it's real or you know made by a person or it's just you know. Come churned out in half an hour from AI. Like, what? Where, where, where's it going? Do you know what, what's the dangers? I, I would sort of put the the dangers in several kind of buckets, depending on we're talking about industrial impact. In other words, uh, are our jobs going to change? Is the sort of nature of uh, work going to change? And then there's the kind of individual 
Um, how are we going to feel when we start sort of relating more closely with AI? In other words, we sort of have these kind of relationships with AI. Uh, we have kind of the beginnings of those with Alexa and, and Siri, very sort of early days. You kind of treat these disembodied voices in a certain way. Um, and then there's the kind of really, to me, the most dangerous part of it, which I don't feel is being talked about enough, although uh, several of the kind of AI leaders, Sam Altman, uh, Joshua Bengio, have talked about this need for, for regulation, um, which we can we can talk about. But I think for in terms of the the way that this is going to sort of alter our lives in the most immediate fashion, um, once again, I think it one would have to say it's going to alter it less than a lot of the naysayers talk about in the short term, but it's probably going to have a much deeper impact in the long, on the long term. So when we, when we see a new technology appear, whether it's a car or TV or these sort of things, we tend to see them uh, through the, the prism of our present existence. So we're thinking in terms now that this is going to uh, take away paralegals' jobs. It's going to take away... Um, low common denominator PR content generation jobs um, and these kind of things. Well, yes, I think all of those things uh, may be true. And I think that for uh, a lot of professions, they're going to see this as an opportunity to kind of cut costs as a, as a sort of cheaper way of doing what they're already doing now. Um and that sadly is the case. I mean, I work with a PR agency advising them on uh, the work that they do on behalf of uh, DeFi and Web3 companies. And my advice to them is use this as much as you can, but just make sure that nothing you have used it for ever um, is ever sort of made public or is ever shared with with a client. I believe it can unlock some thought processes that may not previously have existed um, I love kind of mind mapping and brainstorming these things, but a lot of people aren't comfortable doing that in a group. And so you tend to have a few kind of very noisy people and the most creative people being quite quiet and not contributing very much. So maybe ChatGBT is a great way of sort of unlocking this, of, of make, making people think a little bit outside the box or, or consider things that they might not have considered otherwise. I can see uh, positives yeah. there. But my bigger concern really is that uh, it's, within that sort of industrial economic impact is that we're going to see um, new jobs created um, because there will be new industries arising. Um, There'll be this uh, huge mushrooming of of information and data, most of it generated by AI, and most (laughs) of that generation of AI is going to be based on content that has already been created. So we'll quickly come to a point where it's kind of feeding on itself, devouring itself a little bit. And so somebody somewhere is going to have to kind of sift through all this sort of stuff and, and make sense. Um, my worry is mainly that the kind of people whose jobs will be displaced by this may not be either themselves equipped to retool, reskill, or may not be given the opportunity for that by the companies that they work for, the industries they work for. So I believe there will be a lot of dis- dislocation, serious disruption of of careers, of work as a result of this. And that, I suppose, is, is something I fear because uh, technology, the technology industry, has not shown itself in the last 20 years to be even kind of remotely sympathetic to those people that it, that it uh, outside its own 
um, walled garden, if you like. But Jim, what you're not saying, which, which I should explain, I have in my mind a, a, a picture from, do you remember Look and Learn magazine? Way back. I love, yeah, Look and Learn, yeah. Remember Look and Learn? And they had, this is a kid's science magazine that my parents or parents would buy their kids in the hope that they would learn faster and so on <laughs> the page, and it had a prediction about what life would be like in the year 2000 so you can tell how long ago i was reading this and it suggested that one of the most important challenges humankind would face is how to fill its leisure time because robots would do all the work and humans would just be at leisure so what would we do all day was the question and in a way, you know, this but this incredible technology, arguably one of the most powerful bits of technology that we've witnessed, perhaps alongside or ahead of the invention of sort of um, atomic power. Um, and nobody's saying, well, thank goodness, this is great. We can get machines or technology to solve all these problems for us. And that's going to be a benefit to humankind mm-hmm. in giving us leisure time or promoting peace or solving famine or you know, those you're not mentioning that. that's mm. worrying is that because we didn't give you time to say that or is it because it's you <laughs> don't think it's going to happen uh because we've been promised this as you say since we were, were very young we've been promised this leisure time and and actually it has happened i mean there are large numbers of economically inactive people in britain and i'm sure the same is in australia yeah people who've yeah. just they're not retired and they're not kind of working but they're kind of caught between the two a little bit and especially in our age group, I see people who've effectively decided to retire. They just haven't kind of called it that. So I think we, we are seeing people, and they may have bought a couple of properties in London during the boom, and, you know, they don't need to work anymore. And and you could argue that that is, um, it's not exactly characterized as, as Look and Learn might have might have uh, described yes. it, but the, the net impact is, is the same. Uh, and then, of course, there are people who are just kind of, invisible that that they have mm. been pushed out of this economy and you you won't see them in public you won't see them walking down the street um, i live in a village here as i said it's sort of relatively middle class but i happen to know that there are several families who who need food banks these these things that uh, britain has created to to help people who are who are struggling but of course it's much harder in a in a village to do that because you're visible right you're, you're more prominent you could do it in the town and so a number of people have got together in order to sort of deliver food to them so they don't have the ignominy of of having to go to a sort of centralized uh, distribution point. My argument w- is basically that we've seen disruption of, of business and jobs and work um, all the way through, all the way through our lives, um, and particularly with as technology has grown in the last 20 years, its role in the in the public space and the private space rather than just being the workspace. And so I think the both the beneficiaries of that, the people who don't have to work and they can spend a lot of time. You, you can look online. There's these relatively young, mostly men, who are um, who've made all the money they need. Really, they they don't characterize it like that. And their job is they call it stoics. They will sit there and they will yeah. study and they will use software and and uh, other tools in order to learn. And actually, they will then provide a live feed of them doing that, so you can watch them looking at a computer and you'll see part of the screen um, them working and then the other part of the screen is what they're writing and you'll be able to watch. It's actually quite compelling viewing. But I would <laughs> see those kind of people as the as the types of people you're talking about when we yes. were, when we heard those early promises. It's just not 
as in all predictions, it's not quite the way that we imagined it to be. It's not the Jetsons. It's something. It's not the sun lounges and the cocktails. I, 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 I suppose the thing is, the observation I make is that, you know, in that in that utopian vision, it's almost like, well, we all own part of the robots. But the problem is what you're saying is we don't all own part of the robots, you know, and a few people own the robots and the rest don't. And, you know, right. the, I think the big difference between, like, the Industrial Revolution was that, you know, the factory owners got rich, but everyone had a job and everyone got a feel on the way. Now, you know, the people that own the technology, they don't need the people and the people aren't getting, you know, aren't getting, um, you know, any income from that. So, so I think it's going to create a great disparity um, about it. Divide. Um, I, I suppose what, what both interests and sort of worries me a little bit, earlier we had um, Marcus Byrne on. He was uh, the graphical AI guy and he's really embraced it. He said, I've got to, you know, use this as a, as a tool. But, you know, I've used it a few times, as you sort of suggested, sort of a little bit of when I went on brainstorming. And for simple things, um, you know, I've got a particular writing style and, it, you know, it doesn't do my writing style, but I'm also a bit lazy. And once I've written something, I don't like editing it. And if I ask GPT a question and it gives me something, I'm really tempted to use it, but I never have and I, and I hope I never will. But I just think, I think there's something out there about people, you know, getting lazy uh and 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 creativity requires a certain amount of energy you know to to do something you know it it takes takes mental energy to create something and there's there's no there's only the mental energy in the prompts you know which is not a lot (laughs) so i i I, it worries me about you know that this just that'll be what's the point what's the point of me writing if no one can read it because there's so much crap getting spewed out you know that's the, the thing that i i, I worry about because I, I, I wonder if there is mental energy in the prompts i mean y- you've challenged chat gpt on its sources and how it knows and found out something marcus bryan uh, that person you mentioned he came up with this idea of gaudi creating household objects and uh, that was solved by so tell me what is is that where creativity is going it's about the prompts or do we risk getting lazy, as Paul was suggesting? I think it's a mixture of both, right? I mean, to Paul's point, uh, I, I would call it kind of an embrace of mediocrity, right? We, we've we're now kind of happy enough with with what these things might develop, uh, might create for us, might generate for us, and we we will accept that. And so we're seeing already uh, the, the consequences of that, where a lawyer was castigated by a judge for essentially using GBT um, to argue his case, and it cited all these. Um, uh, relevant cases that were entirely uh, hallucinations. But generally, I think the, the problem with the embrace of mediocrity that, that I, I kind of describe it as when we're creating content that itself is created by some something else, which is based on something else, um, we're, we're entering that circle of essentially um, detaching ourselves, detaching our imprint in Paul's uh, oh. description, you know, your writing style. Um, and accepting this sort of very generic uh, way of uh, of creating words, putting stringing words together. We should always remember that this is basically a predictive algorithm that tries as best as it can to be, uh, predict what the next word in the sentence is. That, how, that is how these things work. It's not uh, about looking carefully at the subject and giving a reasoned response. It, it gives the illusion of that, but that's not what it is. And so part of the frustration of people who develop this technology feel like we're using it in the wrong way we're misunderstanding it and that i think is a 
um, a lack of imagination on their part because we as humans, and we've seen this since the 1960s, if we if there's a chance for us to interact with something that appears to be human um, and doesn't exhibit signs of not being human, we will trust it and we tend to trust it. Uh, there's Joseph Weizenbaum found this where you develop this simple program, I think it was in the 1960s, uh, and he let his secretary play with it. And she was confiding her personal problems with his computer uh, in a way that she never does with anybody else in the office. Uh, I couldn't quite understand that. And I think we're in the same predicament now. His lack of imagination, his lack of understanding uh, of how these things might be used is entirely being replicated now with, with chat GBT. <laughs> I interpret that as a, it's a very exaggerated form of when you're on watching a, a, a cable TV show, a cable TV channel, and it suggests shows based on what you've seen before, and, mm. and therefore it you, you it kind of blinkers you to new thinking because it goes you like documentaries here's another documentary mm. you like that documentary here's another and so it channels you, and, and you're saying ChatGPT is doing the set or the AI is doing the same thing, mm. um, but on steroids because it does it more subtly and it does it in many dimensions, not just on movies. Is, right. is that a fair way of thinking about it? Yes. I mean, I have to give credit to Amazon. It's great at predicting what I might read next and what I might like to see next. Um, YouTube is great at predicting what I might might be interested in seeing. I see that as very basic AI. Um, we do have a problem with AI in terms of our defining it we don't really define it very well so now everybody wants to be called ai because it's trendy but if you tried to kind of get a startup funded in about 2010 2011 and you called it ai you'd be kind of kicked out of the room we've gone yeah. through these kind of winters and summers uh, of ai and we're now in this place that we think is the holy land ai researchers the ai community has long been waiting for this thing called artificial general intelligence which is not artificial intelligence that to all intents and purposes thinks and beha- believes like a human. Whereas AI, as we understand it, it does particular things very well. It recognizes faces. It can distinguish between a cat and a dog. Uh, it knows what kind of things you want to uh, watch uh, next. These are kind of algorithms, right? But uh, AGI, as it's imagined by uh, the AI community, is this quite different beast which would it doesn't you don't have to necessarily think of it as a human robot but it, it would do everything that we as a human do so if we're in this conversation now there's lots of things going on paul is is taking notes you're nodding ed uh, i'm talking there's a car just going out outside there we're doing a lot of things with our with our mind which isn't just recognizing a car or a face etc there's oh. lots of uh, cues and nuances there that a that a human can take on on board and then react to, and AGI as best one could describe it is is kind of that. It's when the AI takes off on its own and behaves, thinks, um, reacts essentially like a human has a general intelligence. Um, and I'm guessing you would say that's even more dangerous because it's even more human like, even though it's not. Is that the, the is AGI? Does the AGI represent that moment when the machine has its what? What it has feeling? It has what's the word? Sent, sent, sentient. sentient. Yes. Um, so even though it's what the AI community are looking to develop, are looking for it. I'm guessing you'd say, "Watch out!" That's a very dangerous step. Yeah, my shtick is that I think that we've kind of already gone past that. 
because we put the sort of signposts in the wrong th- the wrong place. We were looking for certain things. And so if you read AI researchers asked about AGI, it's always, oh, it's 20 years out. It's 20 years out. It's always going to be down the road. Ever since the, the 50s, late 50s, when the term AI was, was uh, created. But I, I think that that's kind of missing the point. I believe that the people who essentially create AI, that the people who are programming it and thinking about it, aren't necessarily the, the people best equipped to understand what the human implications are of the AI they have in front of them. So uh, a good friend of mine, Australian, Jeremy Howard, he's probably one of the top thinkers on AI. And he he was kind of slightly upset when I showed him that um, uh, the dialogue that I had, the chat I had with GBT, Saying, look, this isn't a this isn't a human being that you're interacting with. You can't you're you're treating it like that instead of issuing instructions, sort of prompts, etc. But as we know, that this is how humans tend to interact with anything that they feel might be have human like qualities or uh, are sort of anthropomorphic in some way. You know, we relate to our animals, uh, our pets, in that way. We even relate to inanimate object objects in that way, and. Humans have been like that f- forever. That's how we. That's how we operate. Yes. Um, and so my argument here with where we the point we've reached with AI is that the people developing it don't lack the imagination to think about how this might be used and misused. It's great that they're now talking about turning to regulators to help them, but it's very much the kind of the horse is already out. The the, yeah. the doors are wide open. It, it's it's much too late to have that conversation because. Uh, they, the people developing this stuff essentially haven't sought as broad a, a group of people to help them on, on this and advise them on this. And you can see how Google and to a certain extent one or two of the other players essentially kind of got rid of those kind of thinkers, the more the sociologists, the cultural anthropologists, the people inside the walls who could have advised them about what this technology might mean and its implications. Those people have largely been sidelined or, or left uh, these companies and that's left these very smart ultra si- smart sort of ubermensch if you like people who really they they've their brains are operating on a different level to ours but somehow that seems to kind of limit the capacity to imagine how these things might be abused and the impact it may have on the individual and on the population this is a really strong stream, Jeremy. So you're aware we've spoken to other people in this field. Um, Roger Dennis, who we spoke to just recently, uh, he, he doesn't call himself a futurist, but his, his job is about helping businesses prepare for the future. Mm. Um, and he said, we need more philosophers, less programmers mm. about AI. It, it, programming is good. It does itself. It does it. It's, that's not the philosophers to ask the right questions at the right time. That was his message. Mm. And uh, another uh, futurist specializing in, um, AI, um, a, a guest from Holland whose name is almost unpronounceable. I can't remember it, let alone pronounce it. Um, but his, he told the story that when the genie gets out of the bottle and gives you three wishes, the third wish is always the same, which is, can you undo what I asked for in the first two wishes? And he was suggesting that AI is a bit like that. It's given us the three wishes, and we're getting to the point where we need that third wish now. Can you undo all that stuff, please? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, Tell me, great. So now we're deep down the hole of how <laughs> the gloom would do. But as a as a creative though, what what does AI offer? We mentioned uh, Marcus Bryan who who asked AI to help create 
household objects as though Gaudi had developed them. That's a fun, and it produced beautiful looking things. Is the is is AI? Can we use AI as a creative tool? I'm I'm wondering if if AI channels you down a particular path. Actually, what creators should do is learn to do things that that are unpredictable. It, it sh- you should force yourself to find stimulus and things that a machine wouldn't think of and can't. Is is that one response to AI? Yes. I mean, if we're talking narrowly about AI, I think there are kind of lots of opportunities. You sort of see it in, in production of music, for example, where um, if you use apps like uh, Logic Pro, big kind of um, uh, digital audio workstation or something, it, it's called. Basically, you're, you're making music with it and it will say, okay, do you want, you've just put in your, you recorded your, your drum part there. Do you want me to kind of shuffle it up a bit and play with it a bit and, and see what you think? And, Obviously, you know, this goes back to Brian Eno and his um, mm. deck of cards that he would present to uh, musicians uh, to have them operating in slightly different ways in the way that they're thinking. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. And if AI helps people to do that, uh, I, I think it's it's useful. Chat GBT, what are the different ways that you can think of which would uh, allow me to write a column about blah, 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 for example? Yeah. Um, and going back to Paul's point, that is, you know, the the the, the trigger, the prompt, uh, the phrasing of that prompt is obviously key. In what you define, how you define something, how you define an instruction, is going to determine the usefulness of the output. But there, of course, you have to be careful as well. The the prompt has to be creative because otherwise you're already setting the parameters too narrowly, uh, and so therefore you need to uh, you need to sort of think more broadly i'm wondering if there are moments you should walk away from it and and for example you're trying to write an article about something complicated hmm. try asking someone at the bus stop for, for an input or, or try and express it through dance or do something that would be beyond the realm of what a computer could do otherwise we we inevitably get channeled down grooves because the computer is learning what you do what you like how you behave and giving that same thing back to you and we basically end up um, eating the same pizza every night in one way, shape, or form. <laughs> yes. And so I'd argue that, you know, it's not just philosophers we need for this. Um, we do need people who are going to, might be using this in their, in their day to day life. It's the old problem with, with, uh, aid overseas. We're going to see all these USA AID, uh, projects and different bits and pieces. Um, and more often than not, you, it would have been something that was generated, an idea or a project was generated without any consultation with the people who were going to actually be yeah. using or supposedly benefiting from this. There was no understanding of how the longevity uh, might be assured beyond the, the – this. so if you go to East Timor, there are all these kind of wonderful projects, including local t- TV and radio mm-hmm. stations that are just sort of sitting there idle, gathering dust and weeds growing out of the amplifier, et cetera, because – the person, the people who developed that wonderful sounding project didn't really consult the people who, who needed it. And I think that it's been very much the tenor of the last 20 years uh, has been this uh, technology developed for people who can't imagine how other people might perceive it. Yeah. And so we've got these skeuomorphic interfaces that look kind of real, but then the button for save would be a floppy disk. Now, we... Yeah. We're vintage. We remember what a floppy disk is, but uh, large numbers of people who never even know what a floppy disk is. So, why exactly are you telling me that it's uh, uh, that it's 
that it's safe. It doesn't make any sense. So that that's my worry, I guess, is that the kind of people who the people who are going to be most affected by all this technology are very rarely the people who are ever uh, consulted. Yeah. So do you think it might, uh, you know, in the younger generation, there's a, a big shift to, you know, not drinking, for instance. You know, there's a big group of young people going, I'm not drinking, you know, and uh, we realise it's bad, bad for us. You think there's going to be a whole generation of Luddites that go, you know what, you know, like I, I, I have whole times when I don't look at the news. Now, the world goes on. I just don't know about it and I don't get as stressed about it because I'm not reading all the, the doom and gloom that you're writing about, um, Jeremy. But, you know, I, I just wonder because I, I, get, I get sucked into it and I love it. But, you know, like in the workshops that I run, the masterclass, I get people doing a watercolour of a lemon. You know, it's the total opposite of 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 ai or you know computer generated images it's it's back to the arts and crafts so i wonder if there might be a you know a revolution of people going you know what we're we're checking out we're not we're not gonna you know if we don't engage with it well then it it can't (laughs) it can't grow right right (laughs) yes i i i kind of hope it might be like that we can sort of see a retreat of technology to the places where it's where it's useful but not where it it needn't be, um, and where it kind of um, imposes and, and reduces the, the quality of people's lives. It's just really hard to imagine at the moment that people are going to be able to do that and kind of earn a living. Mm. Um, I suppose the kind of our concern for the younger generation right now is that they, their quality of life may not be as good as ours, and that's the first time in eons that yeah. we're, we're, we're we think that this may be the case, and so that's the source of concern. So somebody's ability to opt out uh, is going to be entirely dependent on you know what uh, what they're living what they might yeah, be able yeah. to do, uh, whether they can afford to to do that. I th- I think a lot of people that we talk about people that opt out the reject technology are often quite closely connected with technology. They just keep it in a very careful box. And, you know, let's say they're, they're weaving or they're brewing their own beer, whatever it might be, something very crafty. But they've got a website and a social community and all those kind of things. And so I suspect they're every bit as exposed to AI as the rest of us. But the dangerous thing is maybe they don't even realise it because the stuff that they're seeing being fed with is effectively, I don't know if you call it polluted with AI, it's kind of, they're not aware that it's, it's not, so, so it's that naivety, that, that mm-hmm. innocence might be the danger point there. Yep, absolutely. Um, I, I, I know what Paul's going no, I know you've got a headline, Jeremy. <laughs> Paul, Paul. No, look, I, I was just going to actually start wrapping it up. Chris, so Jeremy, I know that you've got uh, another engagement and we like to keep these uh, to um, – so we, we keep our listeners interested in the whole whole thing. Um but look, I, I, I love the fact that earlier on in the interview you, you made this observation that you spent, you know, these 10 years encouraging people to use technology, <laughs> you know, to, to convert the Luddites and now you're like, oops, you know, it's, you know, it's like when you're pushing the, the boat, you know, or something down the, you know, and once you go over the edge, you, you can't pull it back and, it's, and it gets away from you. So, <laughs> so yeah, so look, I, I think it's absolutely been fascinating I, I i find your perspective incredibly provocative in terms of you know it's made me think so much you know in fact so much that i've i've been struggling to ask you questions because my mind's just been racing maybe i should have had chat gpt going on the side you know <laughs> feeding me some questions i could have asked you back again but uh you, you, yes i agree jeremy 
thank you very much indeed. We have actually got our plans to get chat gbt on as a guest on the show oh it's hard to do it once it, i'm pleased to report it wasn't very interesting and that's why we haven't <laughs> actually done it yet <laughs> oh, but jeremy thank you so much I, i've learned about skeuomorphic interfaces but i think that bigger point about it is kind of it was now sharing the joy of technology to, and it's become the worry the dangers of technology um and some clues for creatives. It's about the creativity of how you use it, the questions you ask, and maybe the moments when you'd want to get away from it to get something different and fresh. So thank you so much. Excellent. It's been great talking to you guys. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Okay, guys. Well, Chris, that was a much more interesting conversation that we had when we tried to do an episode <laughs> interviewing chat gtp which was very dull so i'm glad that we've gone with jeremy wagstaff rather than with the one of actually interviewing chat gtp yes to explain paul and i have actually tried to have chat gpt on the show as a guest and it was really dull uh, so yes jeremy i think has said so much more light than a computer would have done um um, some of the clues about creativity have been brought out about kind of the prompts that you put in and also the moments you'd want to get away from a computer in order to keep fresh and keep keep human and not become something that's fed that gaslighted down a particular channel. Yeah. And I, and I think the thing is, as he says, you know, we can only imagine what it is going to do from the perspective where we are now. But as it develops, we'll have a different perspective. And I think that's, you know, like as Mark, Marcus Byrne has talked about, it's both scary and exciting. You know, like, is, is, it, is it going to enhance our creativity or is it going to diminish our creativity? And I suppose that's an answer that we won't know until the future. Uh, exactly. I think it's all up to us to know what we're dealing with, use it wisely and make sure it doesn't abuse us or get in the way. But we want to hear from you. Yeah, I was going to say, please put a review in, but please write the review. Don't get chat TTP to put the review in. Uh <laughs> Yes, give us a rating and tell your friends about us. Yeah, please tell your friends. It helps us. It helps our guests get a message out there. Jeremy runs a a wonderful consultancy um, called Cleft Stick. Um, And so it helps them. It helps us. And, of course, it spreads the word about creativity in the world and at, at work. So we'll see you for next week's show of The Common Creative. Bye for now. Stay creative.